Welcome to today's webinar, The Optimal Pathway for ITAR Reform. I'm Mari Kirk, Director of Engagement and Impact here at the United States Study Center. Uh, before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of Australia. The University of Sydney stands on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present, and future. Uh, I further acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on which you are on and pay respects to their elders past, present, and future. Now, I'm going to assume that most viewers who sign up for a webinar on ITAR reform are familiar with ITAR, uh, but for those who have not memorized all acronyms of the US-Australia Alliance, ITAR is the US International Traffic in Arms Regulations, uh, and it is one of the biggest threats to the viability of the Trilateral AUKUS Agreement. Friends and foes are treated alike under this framework, and there is no discernment between a bolt or a piece of critical software. And without special provisions, to be blunt, a large section of the AUKUS agenda is in jeopardy. ITAR reform is a hot topic across the U.S. at the moment. Uh, there has been some positive movement in Congress, but a lasting solution to the ITAR problem is far from assured. But hope is not lost, and today I am joined by Dr. William Greenwald, non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and USSC Research Fellow Tom Corbin, who launched a report this week charting the optimal regulatory pathway via either executive or legislative branches of the US government, or both, to align ITAR with AUKUS and broader defense collaboration objectives. In addition, we're also joined by USSC non-resident senior fellow Jennifer Jacket, who wrote one of our most read reports of 2022 on advanced capabilities and AUKUS Pillar 2. I'm going to start with a panel discussion uh, with our three guests, and then towards the end, I'll open it up to audience questions. And you can submit your question at any time by typing it into the Q&A box. Uh, but now, without further ado, I'm really keen to hear from our experts um, and get some answers to these big questions. So I'm going to go to Bill first. Bill, can you start us off here and just briefly explain what ITAR is, what it was originally designed to do, and what the main issues with it are today? Um, and really, why is this an issue for Australia and the Alliance? Uh, sure, and, and, and happy to be here. And uh, I have to say, we had a, a, a very interesting uh, a group of, uh, of interviews on this. And I think most everyone that we ever interviewed on it basically thought ITAR was a four-letter word that we couldn't uh, uh, talk about. Uh, but uh, the reality is it's, it's U.S. regulations dealing with uh, export controls. And it's distinct, and I think that's something to, to prefer folks to understand here, distinct between uh, the, the law which Congress passes and the regulatory framework, which is ITAR, that the executive branch of the United States uh, uh, is, is, is responsible for. Essentially, I think he needs a little historical context on, on, on how ITAR came about. And, 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 and I think that's really important because it, it, it impacts the, the discussions we have today. It was really designed at the height of U.S. technological dominance. And uh, in, in the post-Cold uh, War period, the U.S. was essentially driving research and development. Uh, uh, our allies were inconsequential uh, in, 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 in this research and development. Uh, Department of Defense plus nuclear matters plus NASA were essentially the U.S. was spending between 8 and 15 percent of its GDP for about uh, 20 years and, and, and created this massive amount of new technologies uh, that never were uh, 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 you know, 
put it put as far as in the defense realm. And uh, uh, ITAR was designed to protect us and 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 to make make sure that U.S. technological dominance was would, would be maintained. But it was also created right in the mid '70s at the height of the U.S. commitment to arms control, and this belief that you know through unilateral restraint, uh, control of the arms race races uh, could could be managed. And we could maintain our technological dominance through essentially a, a command and control centralized planning process to control technology and uh, basically uh, through this uh, research development. So each of the issues with ITAR today really relate to that period where uh, of US technological dominance and a desire to control arms. So the universal application of it, which essentially implies that our allies are not important, the commercial market was not important the extraterritorial application of it, the, the uh, uh, inability to discriminate between friends and foes, between our closest allies and other allies, a real transactional process-oriented system, and probably most importantly, a taint, that stickiness of the, of the controls that if a, one of our allies or commercial company were to produce something, but if it comes in contact with the Department of Defense, it becomes controlled by the United States government. And, 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 and that is kind of relates to this fact that the US believed at this time that it essentially was the only game in town. The main issues to today essentially are, the world didn't work that way. Uh, the, the rest of the world caught up, but most importantly, the US stopped investing and innovation flowed out to not just the global marketplace, but the commercial marketplace. And, and as we see are seeing in Pillar 2 and a few other areas, the, the, the real uh, technological uh, uh, change is happening not in the defense market where we're not spending the, uh, uh, the amount of money that uh, we'd be used to. So why is this important in the office relationship? Primarily because we're not going to be able to succeed and cooperate uh, without a, a system that is more agile and nimble and allows our scientists and engineers to work together uh, on, on difficult problems, be it the development of a new submarine, be the development of new uh, uh, technology in pillar two, or frankly, in areas such as uh, uh, that are needed as co-production or new munitions production, and just, just the day-to-day -day operation of forces. So it dis right now it disincentivizes cooperation, and uh, we are just not gonna achieve the successes that we want to achieve with this close relationship that we're establishing in AUKUS. Thanks, Bill. And it sounds like, you know, tech innovation, but the control and protection of that, those things all lie very much in tension. Um, Tom, I was wondering if I could get you to help us set the scene a bit more. Uh, Bill talked about the political and strategic context in which these export controls were originally developed. Uh, when the U.S. was the dominant uh, party and they were relatively unrivaled in their military technological dominance over its competitors. Uh, but what is different today um, and why or how has that advantage they once had? How has that now been undermined? Sure, Mari. Thanks for the question. And before I launch into my answer, I just wanted to say what a great pleasure it is to have Bill on the line uh, and to have written the report with him. I think it's, it's hopefully going to be a really valuable resource as this goes forward. And Great thanks to you, Jen, for joining us for this important discussion. Um, I think Bill set the scene 
pretty aptly in his remarks just now, but I think it's perhaps worth digging a little bit further into the three sources of uh, competition really to US military technological dominance that we see kind of emerging at the moment. Um, so the first would be the challenge that's emanating from adversaries, particularly adversaries like China. Uh, China over time has been able to replicate many of the defense unique aspects of the US defense industrial base, but it's also deliberately pursued a strategy of civil military fusion, which has allowed it through that kind of regulatory and policy framework um, but also, also through the nature of its governance structures to really accelerate the use of commercial technologies and funneling them into kind of a military application, if you will. Um, this has come, of course, from the theft of intellectual property from US companies. I think last year we saw perhaps the biggest and the most significant indicator of that with the Washington Post story that broke in October about the amount of hypersonic software that had been essentially lifted legally or illegally, it must be said, from US companies by Chinese front companies who are affiliated with the People's Liberation Army. Um, those technologies were actually instrumental in the China hypersonic weapons test the year before, which the US chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, um, had more or less said was a, a Sputnik moment for the United States to, you know, to underscore the magnitude of that challenge to US military technological dominance. As Bill teased out, it's not just adversaries who are catching up. The commercial sector has become a really viable source of cutting edge technology in a way that it perhaps wasn't in decades past. Um, you only have to look at the example of the SpaceX Falcon 9 project and how quickly and under budget that project was able to get to its conclusion I won't go into the details here, but I think it cost a tenth of the price that a, a similar NASA project was going to cost, and it delivered at a much faster rate. And in the more kind of defense-specific space, if you look at a recent decision by the Department of Defense to cancel an underwater drone project, which has been going for 14 years and has cost over $200 million because it wasn't able to find the solution to the problem that the Defense Department had. And considering that there are commercial technologies out there that can be used in similar applications, it's a bit of a no-brainer to make that decision. The important thing here for AUKUS is that the third, the third source of competition um, as far as US military tech dominance is concerned comes from allies now. Um, South Korea is probably the best example of this. It spent decades making deliberate investments in defense unique or defense adjacent R&D sectors um, to the point where it is now in some areas competing with the United States in areas where US companies traditionally had dominance in the defense market in terms of exports. But it's also true for countries like Australia. Like there's a reason why the United States is looking to Australia, the United Kingdom and other countries like Japan to cooperate on things like hypersonics, quantum AI, you name it. So really, I think that last that last source of the challenge, the allies piece, is probably the most critical to the, the discussion we're having today about AUKUS. Thanks, Tom. And Bill, I want to follow up with you on one more thing before I uh, bring Jen into the conversation. But this is just a bit more on, again, like the history and the story of AUKUS, but really the attempt, or not AUKUS, but ITAR, and the attempts to reform and change it. So um, AUKUS is not the first time uh, that Australia and the, and the U.S. have discussed export control reforms, um, nor the first time that the U.S. has considered relaxing these controls for trusted allies. 
Uh, and people in this room are probably familiar with uh, acronyms like NTIB. Uh, but what can you tell? Can you talk to us through some of these different attempts to reform uh, ITAR in the past and these, uh, yeah, the control re regulations? And why did they fail? Why didn't they work out in the end? Sure. No. Uh, this uh, essentially AUKUS is really the the third bite at the apple, or or I'm not sure the third bite of whatever the Australian uh, similar uh, 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 saying is. Uh, but yes, the so you know in. After the, uh, the or during the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan, there was a, this this uh, understanding by the Bush administration that there was a need to streamline the process because operations and maintenance and what we're not what we're having some some issues, and so there there was a, a movement to try to go to Congress and get an ITAR exemption for uh, uh, Australia and the UK. Uh, Congress did not approve uh, 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 that. And so then uh, they were forced into, into negotiating a treaty. And that treaty, the Defense Trade Treaties, uh, uh, was a long process, uh, essentially started in uh, 2007 and didn't get uh, into effect until 2013. And frankly, are probably not worth much uh, because of they were undermined in, in, in a number of different ways and made it operable. Um, and, and, and then, because of that, uh, my former boss, Senator John McCain, uh, wanted to reinstitute uh, that that uh, same type of reform effort in the NTIB, and then and 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 sponsored the legislation that added uh, the U.S., uh, the U U.K., and Australia to the NTIB. And looking at that, four or five years later, that didn't work either. So what 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 you know what what undermined that? Primarily, it is a it's 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 this I'm going to call it this delusional outlook that our allies can really not provide uh, a, 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 you know new innovation or they can't be trusted with this 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 technological dynamo that is the U.S. military and unfortunately it's delusional in a sense because technology is not where it was and we need to work together as an alliance. And we need to bring our engineer, our limited engineering and scientific knowledge together to solve some of these problems. And in certain areas in the US government and the executive branch, but also in the Congress, uh, there's been a lot of pushback on this. And hopefully we're finally seeing the realization that the US is falling behind. The US needs its allies and we need to change these, these uh, uh, bureaucratic impediments to our being able to cooperate and deploy real capability for our militaries. Right. Um, <clears throat> and hopefully we'll see some change coming up and there have been movements on the Hill. So watch this space. And I have a feeling that the annex of your report, which lays out uh, your strong recommendations and a very clear pathway, hopefully you're hitting right at the right time and it will fall um, on the right ears. Uh, now, Dan, I'm keen to turn to you because last year, you wrote a report for USSC um, on Australia's innovation ecosystem as it relates to the technolo technology uh, categories that are covered under AUKUS Pillar 2. Uh, can you speak to us about any areas where you think Australia has a particular strength or relative advantage over its AUKUS partners? Um, I think a lot of the narrative around AUKUS so much of it's dominated by the nuclear-powered submarines, and there's a sense that Australia is just that we're beholden to the US and the UK and they're gifting us with this. 
but not much of the dialogue around <clears throat> what Australia really brings to the table. And I think this pillar two piece around advanced capabilities uh, is really important. So what would you say is Australia's value add um, under pillar two? Thank you, Mari, and thanks so much for the chance to be here today. And also congratulations to Bill and Tom on a thorough and timely report. I think ITAR can be very complex and technical, and what we need is practical and specific recommendations, which this report very much contains. Just to take a step back for a brief moment, I think what's clear from the discussion so far is that there are many challenges and complexities in reforming ITAR, but I think it's important to say that the costs of failure, both strategically and militarily, are even greater. And Australia's recent defence strategic review made clear that we're facing dangerous strategic circumstances. We must proceed with a sense of urgency in how we prepare for a potential military contingency. And how Australia and the allies, uh, US, how the US, sorry, and allies like Australia work together on capabilities arising from developments in artificial intelligence and quantum computing are really at the centre of the strategy that we have to try and deter and, if needed, respond uh, in the region. So AUKUS is about bolstering, I think, Australia's capability to do this. Ideally, we'll never need to deploy many of these capabilities, but if needed, we actually need to be confident that we are prepared to both fight and win. So as Bill mentioned, a key premise of the AUKUS partnership, especially under Pillar 2, is that we build these capabilities together and the combined scientific, technological, industrial capacities of our three countries are actually seen as greater than the sum of their parts. So last year, what I wrote about is what we need to do as a first step to make the most of this. We need to understand what each partner offers and where some of those gaps are that need to be filled. And what I found is that Australia actually has some really important contributions to make to this partnership, despite being a much smaller economy and with a more modest defence industry. So broadly speaking, Australia has world-class research institutions and a skilled workforce. We're very attractive to foreign talent and we are a stable destination for investment. We have a modest but growing defence sector and we have developed some cutting edge capabilities like the Bushmaster vehicle and phased array radar and are developing capabilities like the artificial intelligence enabled GhostBat aircraft that's unmanned. But when it comes to scientific research in particular, Australia has some really specific strengths. So we are world renowned for quantum research in areas like silicon technology, a key input for quantum computing hardware. We're ranked in the top five globally for artificial intelligence related research. And of course, we're undertaking research on hypersonics along with the US already. So I think AUKUS presents a huge opportunity to translate more of this research into cutting edge capabilities. But I should say that there are some challenges in Australia's defense innovation ecosystem that will also be important to address to realize some of the opportunities of AUKUS, especially around funding, incentivizing commercialization, and better integrating defense industry and academia. But the problem I see with ITAR in relation to this is that at best what we can hope for is that Australian researchers and companies working on these cutting edge areas will find it timely 
um, time consuming and costly to maybe work with US partners. And at worst, some of these arrangements as they currently stand with ITAR could deter collaboration in the first place. So I think what's important here is that, um, and going back to Bill's point, ITAR is not only about what the US can do for allies, it's also about what allies can do for the US. And this requires a mindset shift around not only focusing on the risks of sharing, but fundamentally, what are the risks of not sharing these technologies? That's really interesting and uh, coming to mind for me as recently I had the um, good fortune to tour the University of Sydney's Nanolab, uh, where they're working on a lot of these you know, nanotechnology. And it was fascinating to see what they're working on and how they're really advancing the field and I'd heard about this lab but I did not know I, I guess kind of how at, at what level they are um, in terms of their advancement um, and their world stature for the technology they're doing and they're literally just like a couple minute walk from here right here um, I think it's exciting I think it's a story that could be told more and I think it would be very exciting to see a map done of all these different tech capabilities across the AUKUS partners and where those synergies and opportunities really are. Um, Tom, I'll, I'll go to you because I want to hear a bit more after we had the announcement uh, for the roadmap for the submarine program. We still really don't have a lot of information on Pillar 2 just yet. Um, but especially because ITAR really deals in this like tech regulation space it might seem like we've got time to fix ITAR before the problem gets too far advanced. But in the report, both you and Bill outline how um, the ITAR problem is already here for AUKUS. We're already seeing the issues and the imp impacts. Can you talk to us about how real time we are seeing uh, the impacts of ITAR, even though AUKUS as a program is still in its nascent stages? Yeah, sure. I think you summarized it really well there. Like ITAR is already here for AUKUS. We're already dealing with the problems, even if we don't have a lot of tangible progress to point to in terms of capabilities delivered through AUKUS just yet. So if you think about what AUKUS is intended to deliver in its most ambitious form, there's obviously Pillar 1 with the submarines. There's Pillar 2 with advanced capabilities. But I think it's also worth thinking about um, the production of legacy capabilities and the co-production of these systems, something which Bill and I term as pillar three in the report. I think it's really quite difficult to separate this from the other two pillars if you think about the kind of the life cycle requirements of maintaining and sustaining all of these platforms on a rolling basis. Um, I actually think Bill and I are fairly optimistic on the chances for Pillar 1, precisely because we have a lot of time to get this right. Submarine program is going to take decades. That gives us a little bit of flex room to make sure that the ITAR conditions are optimal. And the US has done this before, right? It's done this with the United Kingdom. Um, by some accounts that we heard through our interviews for this report, the nuclear propulsion agreement that exists between the US and the UK is actually working a lot better than any ITAR-bound information exchange programs, um, which should give Australia some hope that at least this aspect of the submarine program will work out. But of course, nuclear propulsion is only one of probably hundreds of technologies that sit on a, a nuclear-powered submarine. Um, the United Kingdom faced problems with maintaining and sustaining its own nuclear-powered submarines because of ITAR problems. 
Um, I can also foresee challenges when pillar two capabilities start to be integrated onto these platforms if we don't address the ITAR problem right now. That's probably a neat segue into talking about pillar two, um, which is to say that kind of Australian versions of ITAR free capabilities and quite frankly, therefore AUKUS free versions of capabilities already exist or are being developed at quite a rapid pace. Um, so you have things in the space domain, you have low orbit satellites, you have underwater drones that are being developed by companies like Andrel, which are quite explicitly intended to be ITAR free. You also have things like Boeing's loyal wingman UAV, which while not necessarily something that would fall under the technology capabilities in pillar two is still something that the three countries would undoubtedly like to work on together. There's a little bit of a catch 22 here for Australia, I think, because on the one hand, ITAR incentivizes the Australian government and Australian companies to shield these capabilities from US design input because of the taint problem that Bill sketched out rather aptly earlier in our conversation. Even when such collaboration could greatly enhance what these systems can actually do. I think you're seeing that play out right now with the Go Shark by Andrew, as I just mentioned. On the other hand, because of the need to cooperate with the United States to produce these things at scale and in some instances to maximize the technological possibilities, we do have to share these capabilities with the United States. But even when what we do share is predominantly Australian IP, when there is US design input, as Bill said, it becomes ITAR incumbent, it becomes controlled by the State Department, it is exceedingly difficult to get the most advanced versions of these capabilities back, um, which doesn't make sense, right? If these are mostly Australian designed and Australian built, you would think there would be some kind of waiver or clause in the law that means that it's easier to get these systems returned. But currently it's not, and this is probably something that needs to be addressed. Just quickly on pillar three, as I said, you know, expanding existing industrial base capabilities that we have across all three countries is, adjacent to AUKUS and as we put it in the report you really should consider this a pillar three things like munitions for example which are going to be loaded onto the kinds of capabilities developed through pillar two they're going to be on the submarines that we get through pillar one these are as ITAR incumbent and as ITAR constrained as any of the capabilities that we delivered under the other two pillars and the munitions discussion playing out in Australia right now through the guided weapons and explosive ordnance enterprise, um, that's really a microcosm for the broader problems that ITAR poses to industrial collaboration on what are really legacy systems. We're not even talking about emerging technologies that are in their infancy at the moment. We're talking about things that are proven and that we really should be able to streamline cooperation on much easier than we currently do. Thanks, Tom. And just a quick follow-up. Uh, this AUKUS Pillar 3, which you talk about in the report, uh, would you say compared to Pillars 1 and 2, is that more the low-hanging fruit or is that like the biggest mountain to climb because it's been there for so long and it's proved really challenging? Where would you kind of place it along the easy to adopt to really difficult spectrum? Uh, probably somewhere in the middle. Um... Yes, they are legacy capabilities. Some of these systems are two or three generations behind the most cutting edge technology at the moment. Um, but on the other hand, things like munitions fall under a whole range of authorities in the US system. It's not just ITAR, it's things like the US munitions list, for example, 
which makes it really hard to share not just missiles, but also unmanned systems between the United States and its allies. So you know, it's a really complex problem, but there are certain things in that pillar three bucket that we really should be able to move on quite quickly to generate near-term deterrence payoffs. Right. And so what is the fix here? Um, Bill, you've got decades of experience working uh, on these issues across the U.S. system. What sort of changes are required to get AUKUS working in its best possible way? Um, is ITAR the end of the story? Um, what else do you think we need to think about when we're thinking through how the AUKUS countries will collaborate um, on advanced capabilities and technologies? Well, the, the first uh, change is necessary. Is, is a mindset change. And I think Tom did a terrific uh, description of, of laying out the, the problems that are, that, are, that are facing us. But the reality is we as free nations need to be looking at the next couple years, like three to five of what we can actually deploy to change the balance of power currently that's, that's rapidly uh, uh, going against us. And so the submarines are great, but that's not in a three to five year period. Pillar two, many of those things could be if we get our mindset around time to innovation, which is something that we've all kind of lost, but which was the, the bedrock of how the U.S. innovated in the 1950s, essentially pursuing operational competitive op operational prototypes, getting them out of the field and then upgrading them incrementally uh, as, as we went forward. So ITAR is, is one part of this, but there are many others. But, the, but, the, but nothing will happen. We can't work together unless we change the rules of the game, and that is ITAR. And so what is needed there is essentially a positive discrimination in three areas. So in other words, we look at our closest allies, and we positively discriminate against them uh, in, uh, in, in, in three different subsets. And those are, the first is kind of what we were talking about in pillar three, U.S. tech or, 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 uh, or the, sub, the first, the first uh, Virginia class uh, uh, submarines. In other words, th this needs, we need a bureaucratic streamlining. We need a concept of materiality. We need to figure out how we can actually work and maintain and operate uh, and, and potentially co-produce these type of US technology, legacy US technologies. Uh, the second point is exactly where, where Tom was, was on Australian, UK, and uh, frankly, our other close allied technology to address the taint that we can now start bringing in the best of the best in the world into the US systems in a way that doesn't disincentivize bringing in that tech and require the US to replicate everything out there in the global marketplace. And finally, the, the, the third area is, is the same thing with addressing the taint, is incentives for joint collaboration. So really the pillar two. But again, we need to start thinking about pillar two in a time to innovation uh, uh, segment. So where do you start? Actually, the you know positive discriminating, the concepts of the treaty are really sound in the sense that you create a free space for unclassified technology cooperation. You establish a trusted community to be defined by, uh, uh, by the countries in, involved. And, uh, and, but that all of that's gonna require a legislative fix in the US Congress to allow for positive discrimination. And finally, 
the willingness and the trust involved in the executive branch to change regulations to achieve these objectives. Right. And I love how you framed it as like this change to the mindset. And I think when you first started off talking about the history and how ITAR originated in the 1970s, the mindset was completely different. The world was completely different. Uh, so I like this uh, mindset shift, paradigm shift for U.S. innovation um, and that ecosystem. Jen, I'm keen to get your thoughts from the Australian perspective on the Australian innovation ecosystem. Um, it's not just the U.S. that has to think through these issues. And I know that you're doing some work uh, at the moment on Australia's uh, Accelerated Strategic Capabilities Accelerator. Can you talk to us a bit more about that and what Australia needs to do to maximize these sorts of late advantages that you discussed before? Thanks, Mari. Yeah, picking up on Bill's point around addressing that issue of time to innovation, that's exactly where the Australian government has been seeking to go and the Defence Strategic Review again made clear about the need to more quickly develop asymmetric capabilities to contend with the strategic circumstances that we face. So in April this year, they announced that they would be establishing very quickly the Advanced Strategic Capabilities Accelerator, known as ASCA, by July this year. So the aim there is to fast track the translation of technological advances into capabilities for the warfighter with a focus on what they term minimum viable capability. So it's really about doing things as quickly as possible given that three to five year window of preparation um, that we're working towards. So there's various missions that ASK is going to be focused around, including many of the areas covered by AUKUS Pillar 2, like hypersonics and quantum technology. And importantly, this accelerator replaces some of the existing defence innovation programs that have existed in defence, like the Defence Innovation Hub or the Next Generation Technologies Fund. And what it's trying to do is drive a cultural shift um, and maybe some of the issue, address some of the issues that were present in those programs. And in fact, just this week, the Deputy Prime Minister and Defence Minister Richard Miles said that what is needed is a cultural shift when it comes to defence innovation in Australia and summed it up as not being afraid to fail fast, to learn and to adapt. So I think this is definitely a step in the right direction to get at some of the challenges that we've had in Australia's defence innovation ecosystem and to better support the country to deliver on capabilities as part of AUKUS, but also that are stipulated in the DSR, the Defence Strategic Review. It also comes with extra funding, which really matters. So they've committed around $3.4 billion over the decade, which is said to result in around um, half a billion dollars in extra funding for defence innovation. But I think it's important to say that ASCA doesn't necessarily get at all of the challenges that we see in Australia's defence innovation ecosystem or the wider innovation ecosystem. So there's a question around whether or not it goes far enough and whether it can do things like drive a more positive um, engagement with risk in the defence organisation, streamline some of the unnecessary bureaucracy and also provide better signals to industry and researchers about what government requirements are for capability development. 
And there, I think, as part of AUKUS, there's actually some great examples that we can learn from in the US with DARPA, but also the UK has established their own technology innovation acceleration agency, ARIA. Um, so we should definitely use that trusted environment and even in the AUKUS context to understand how to get through some of those barriers um, that exist. And just more broadly, you know, ASCA is only part of the puzzle in supporting a stronger defence industry and innovation environment in Australia. More generally, there's been a flatlining of government investment in research and development for a long time. We still have pretty limited manufacturing capability in the country. There's always challenges around commercialisation in our market um, and a skilled workforce shortage, which the government is trying to address through some immigration reform. So it's just part of the puzzle and the solution, but it is very much the step in the right direction. And if it succeeds, uh, it could deliver some real capabilities for the AUKUS partnership. But again, it comes back to this question of ITAR and whether or not um, that provides the right incentives for collaboration among defence industry on some of these capabilities with the US system or whether it's a hindrance. And so there's a real need to address that to make this technology acceleration successful, not only for Australia, but the contribution it can make for our collective capability. Thanks, Jen. And I like hearing about um, the opportunities for Australia, what they can do and how they can change the playing field. Um, one more question before I move to the audience questions. Um, and just a reminder that uh, you can submit any questions through the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen. We've had some great ones come through already. Uh, but And this question is for anyone, um, but Tom, I might start with you. Uh, but on ITAR reform, you guys set out a very kind of specific uh, regulatory change pathway in the US system for what can be done on ITAR. But what can Australia do to move things along? Is there anything that Australia can be doing uh, that can be advancing and working toward this ITAR reform? Because uh, I'm assuming it's not just the US, but hopefully there's stuff Australia could do as well. Sure. I mean, in terms of moving the cart forward on ITAR reform specifically, the, at the end of the day, this is a decision that the Congress and the executive branch will have to make. So what Australia can best do, I think, is to keep rattling the cage, so to speak, on the need for this to happen. Um, all the public reporting I've seen that has quoted congressmen um, on the prospects for reform to ITAR, even from the most verdant supporters of ITAR reform for Australia, have said this is probably going to take a couple of years. Australia can't really afford for the momentum behind ITAR reform at the moment to kind of fizzle over that period. So we really do have to keep the pressure on. Things we can do in the adjacent space, um, I think there's a question in the Q&A about some of the information protections Australia might have to consider itself. That is one part of it. But I think Jen did a pretty good uh, job of sketching out some of the other things that Australia has to ensure that it has in place to make sure that we can contribute to AUKUS in a way that actually makes ITAR reform even more of a no-brainer than it already is. We kind of, you know, we're the smaller power here. We have niche advantages we don't have the scale that the United States does. So we need to keep you know, raising our voice and we need to keep showing that we're capable of doing this. Uh, I, I, let me come in here for just a, just a sec. I, th I think that Australia has some very interesting comparative advantages 
And if you look at what the U.S. Is, has, is failing to do, it's failing to take advantage of the vast preponderance of commercial research and developments out there in the globe. And, and you know, our Department of Defense is focused primarily on traditional defense unique research and development and is having a very difficult time incorporating some of the most innovative and dynamic uh, new technologies out there because they're controlled by commercial companies who, by the way, have the same ITAR problem that you guys have here in Australia. So there is a comparative advantage that you can take advantage of. And frankly, the R&D that Australia could take advantage of is so much more than the research and development that, that the Department of Defense in the US can, can bring to bear. And I think you could, if you get the right policies in the acquisition, in the budgeting, in the uh, uh, technological control area, can actually uh, 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 do something much better than the United States. And by doing that makes a compelling case for the US to take, pay attention to countries like Australia. Maria, just add from my perspective, I think there's an awareness raising piece to in Australia for US interlocutors around a lot of reform that's taken place here in the last five years to harden the security environment and the protection of critical technology. And this isn't specific to the defence space, but there's been substantial reforms to our foreign direct investment screening regime for foreign investment in sensitive technology-related businesses. There's been legislation around countering espionage and foreign interference. There's been a substantial body of work between government and universities on uh, countering foreign interference or unwanted transfer of knowledge in the university sector in sensitive research and there's also been a hardening of critical infrastructure regulations and the cybersecurity requirements put on businesses. So I think there's a good story to tell too in that broader regulatory space around the seriousness with which the government is taking the protection of critical technology and that's above and beyond I guess some specific initiatives in the defence portfolio like the defence industry security program. So I think that all comes into it in, in sort of building trust um, for countries like Australia to collaborate more closely and become stewards and share uh, these sensitive technologies. Great. Thanks, all. Great thoughts. And, and Jen, your points actually dovetail perfectly with the first question I was going to go to from the audience Q&A. <clears throat> and you've already answered it a little bit, but wondering if anyone wants to expound on this in particular, but they say, given that defense in Australia expressed concerns about the transfers of defense technology to foreign persons on Australian territory, uh, should Australia first take additional measures to restrict such transfers as part of any request for an ITAR exemption? What are your thoughts? I think I'm ultimately, happy. yeah, go ahead, Tom. Sorry, Bill. No, no, Bill, go first, please. No, no, I, I think ultimately how ITAR is going to be solved is through the creation of a trusted industrial base. And, uh, and, 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 and as we move towards that, the first pillar will probably be the traditional defense industry. And then we'll have a concentric circle of trusted uh, commercial companies that go in here. The, the key thing we have to, to, to address is that our adversaries are really good 
at establishing front companies to uh, uh, basically uh, rip off our technology. And the only defense we're going to have is to create trusted communities that can protect th this uh, uh, technologies, but at the same time, encourage and incentivize the right kind of innovation. And that's going to be a, a real difficult trade-off, but something that really has to, has to happen. Tom? Thanks, Bill. I guess the broader point I'd like to make here is that we're getting to a point now where Australia, the United States, and the UK, in the context of AUKUS, need to think more, sorry, but need to think about more than just joint capability development. We need to think about jointly developing the protections for the technologies that go into those capabilities. You can't simply have kind of the technology piece moving forward and then the kind of the protections racing to catch up because as we've seen, you know, this doesn't necessarily end well for the United States, Australia, and the UK when that happens. But the other part of that is that I think from an Australian perspective, this can't simply be about adopting US standards for the way we do this. I mean, ITAR is a good example of where there are inefficiencies in the American way of doing things on this front, to be quite frank, that need to be revised. And AUKUS really is a chance for the three countries to get together and you know, reconceptualize how we go about protecting these things in a collaborative way. So yeah, just to re-underscore the point, it's not just joint capabilities, it's joint protections for those capabilities as well. Tom, that's a great point because the productivity of U.S. defense spend is horrible. And, and it's primarily because of bureaucratic uh, uh, processes, whether it's acquisition, whether it's budget, whether it's requirements, whether it's contracting, whether it's technology control, all of those things create costs on the system. And if Australia and our allies adopt these things, we'll never be able to compete in, in the future. And so there has to be a, a, essentially a race to reform of essentially the management processes that uh, drive innovation. Well, there's the title of our next report, Bill, Race to Reform. <laughs> <laughs> I love good. it. I love it. I'm here for it. Um, now, I had a couple questions come in on this topic. Uh, Jim Caruso said, you know, is the Canada ITAR exemption model our exemption, a model for Australia. What do you guys think? And you talk about the Canada exemption in your report. The Canada exemption is a is a, a a good way of positively discriminating, but the Canada exemption, as it is practiced today, is not an incentive for innovation and really not an incentive for cooperation. It's essentially uh, a way of of of. Uh, uh, putting a box around legacy cooperation that occurred in the 60s, 70s, and 80s and with the U.S. and Canada. Uh, so you have to essentially take the Canadian exemption, which allows for positive discrimination, and take it to the next level. And it should be done not just for the U.S. and the U.K., but we should look at, uh, the U.S. should look at uh, the Canadian uh, example as well, because there's a lot of innovation there that should be uh, addressed. But but just to strictly adopt the Canadian exemption and be done, we would get nowhere because the Canadian exemption is just not very helpful in its present state. Um, I don't have much more to add to that. Bill summed it up quite well. Um, I do think it's worth pointing out, and Bill, correct me if I'm wrong here, but the Canadian government basically had to stand up um, arms of government simply to deal with the, ref the requirements um, of being part of this kind of expanded trusted industrial base um, 
that's not necessarily, to go to my comments before, a model that Australia will necessarily want to follow. The time and the resources it takes to stand up entirely new arms of government to handle these things are just not worth it when we're in a position to rethink how we do this in the first place. And, and particularly when what we're protecting in the US-Canadian relationship is not a lot and it's not forward thinking uh, whatsoever. It was understandable based on the politics uh, of the, uh, uh, around the 2000 era when uh, uh, the, the Iranians were using Canadian front companies to uh, uh, provide spare parts to their, to their uh, machinery. But uh, 20 years have passed and, and frankly, the world has changed and, and, and the, the, what, what the bureaucracy that the Canadian government has been forced to uh, open up is probably not something we want to replicate around the world. Um, we've got another great question here, uh, and it's very timely as well. But uh, can you describe how the ITAR challenge to AUKUS is being viewed now in D.C.? The Torpedo Act on one hand, State Department inertia on the other. Um, and is there any consensus on breaking through the obstacles in order to rapidly deliver on the promises of Pillar 2 in this decade. Um, and on the first part, Tom and I, literally two weeks ago, we were in D.C. meeting with a whole bunch of government agencies and having this conversation. Um, so I might go to Tom first, uh, but keen to hear from anyone on this question and how we can rapidly deliver on Pillar 2. We've talked about that a little bit as well, but Jen, if you've got anything uh, to add on that, we'd love to hear that. But Tom, I might go to you first. Sure. So... My kind of abbreviated sense of where the discussion is right now in DC is that there's a lot of interest in Congress in moving on this because they're starting to recognize what an issue this is, not just for AUKUS, but for the, the US-Australia Alliance Defense Industrial and Technology Collaboration Agenda writ large. Like This is bigger than AUKUS, to be frank. This is about the way the United States does defense industrial cooperation with Australia, with the United Kingdom and with other allies as well. That said, my sense equally is that the conversation right now is about process acceleration rather than about fundamental process reform, kind of go to Bill's point about um, the need to think about how we co-develop systems, not just how we kind of feed into each other's capability programs respectively. Um, I also think based on our time in DC, Mari, and based on some other kind of conversations I've been having in the background, I think the executive branch is starting to get that this is an important issue as well. So I'm fairly confident that things like the Torpedo Act are going to move the needle on the ITAR issue. But at the same time, this is probably going to take a couple of years to get right. You've seen even the biggest champions of ITAR and Congress come out and say this is probably going to be a, a multi-year process. Hence why Australia needs to keep the pressure on the key movers of this legislation and the key movers of reform in the US system more broadly. And Bill, your thoughts from DC? Yeah, I, I think what's the most remarkable thing looking at this is the complete flip-flop in uh, the party's views on this. And uh, the, the Republican Party in around the year 2000, 2000 early 2000s, was really the problem that drove the, the uh, ITAR to become as problematic as it is. And it was a reaction to the Hughes-Loral case, it was a reaction to the Canadian-Iranian uh, 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 case, and the whole system just consolidated and, and, and became more rigid. And the Democrats were just kind of like, okay, that's, that, that's fine. 
Now the Republicans are really moving on this. You've got Gallagher, you've got Whitman, you've got uh, McCall, you've got uh, Risch, all proposing new ideas on how, you know, not, not necessarily they're, they're not as coherent as I think we, we would like to see them, but they're, they're, they're definitely moving the ball in the right direction. And the Democrats are the ones who are the problem, uh, primarily on, on the Senate side, primarily in uh, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And then, of course, you have the longstanding legacy of a uh, entrenched bureaucracy who is still delusional about where innovation actually is uh, uh, is created. So that's really the politics going on. And we're not sure, I'm not really not sure how it's going to play out because it, particularly in the Senate, uh, uh, you can stop a lot of legislation uh, by just basically saying no. Just a, a quick two-finger on that, Murray, to play good cop to Bill's bad cop on this. Um, yes, there, like there is a, a culture problem in the U.S. bureaucracy when it comes to how we how they think about innovation, rather. But they also don't have the political cover to accelerate processes or think about reforms for Australia um, in the manner that would incentivize them to try things and to fail. Them, you know, for for early or mid-career bureaucrats, there are plenty of incentives not to accelerate the process for Australia because if something goes wrong, it's their neck that's going to be on the chopping block. Um, you know, and that can be that can be a fine, that could be career progression ramifications. In the worst case, it could be jail. So, you know, you need that political top cover from Congress, from senior folks in the state and the defense departments and in the White House, frankly, in order for this to move forward and for the culture to actually start to change too. And Jen, I just want to ask you quickly on that bit about that. Is there any sense um, of consensus on breaking through obstacles in order to rapidly deliver? on the promises of Pillar 2 in this decade. And I'm going to expand it, like, not just about DC, but also from a Canberra perspective, because you're based in Canberra. Are you getting a read or a vibe of consensus on breaking through those obstacles in either setting? I thought Bill and Tom provided fascinating insights, really, into where the current conversation is at, especially in DC. So I, I don't really have that much more to add, and I haven't had the opportunity to be in DC and, and have some of those conversations. I think what I would say is that if AUKUS and the decline of the US technological edge, particularly vis-a-vis -vis China, isn't sufficient grounds to break through some of these barriers, then I'm not sure what is. So I think the strategic intent around agreeing a partnership like AUKUS has to be enough of a motivator to break through some of these barriers. And I think at the strategic political level, there is a desire to see progress. But as Bill and Tom so expertly discussed, there are many other factors at play in Congress, um, in the bureaucracy itself. And it's about aligning some of those strategic political imperatives and directions that have been set with what happens um, in other parts of the system, but clearly that's still a work in progress. Yeah, great. Um, just a couple more questions and, and then we'll wrap it up. The time's gone so quickly. Um, this one, I, is, is there any discussion in the US to simply remove uh, extraterritorial jurisdiction when it comes to US export controls? This could eliminate the issue of having to deal with the ITAR slash EAR taint and similar. The allies have their own export control regimes as agreed in international conventions and can effectively manage their tech transfer. Um, so has there been any discussion of removing that jurisdiction? Um, no, 
and and it's a discussion that the U.S. actually should have uh, because uh, if uh, the the idea of of our allies mimicking our export control relation uh, and actually adding their own versions of extraterritoriality uh, to the system would essentially shut down the U.S. innovation system tomorrow. And I think there's just that that realization that extraterritoriality is 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 a, such a, a, a an incredible weapon. Uh, that uh, can just shut down all innovation cooperation uh, in, in the future if, for example, our allies, you know, turn the tables on us and, and applied it to the U.S. Okay. Um, and then I'll combine these two questions here because they kind of are looking at something from the same angle. Uh, one person's asking, how can the Australian defense industry get involved? And another person's asking, would it help if the primes and unis across the AUKUS defense innovation eco ecosystem came together to force the issues by committing to greater trust-based seamless accelerated collaboration. Tom, do you wanna go, go with that one? No, I think this is actually perfectly placed for Jen. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, I guess getting involved in terms of, I'm gonna read it as, you know, how can Australian defence industry help drive change around ITAR? But please um, provide additional context in the in the chat if there's something else you'd like to focus on. I think it goes back to what Tom especially was talking about in terms of maintaining that pressure, really, um, both on the Australian government in terms of highlighting some of the challenges and barriers that exist for small and medium enterprises in Australia in particular that are seeking um, to collaborate with the US to scale in the US market um, so they can play a big role in maintaining that pressure and also making that clear to the US system. But just more broadly on the opportunities for industry, clearly Pillar 2 in particular and the increased focus on technology acceleration by defense provides huge opportunities. So I think it's about making clear what those are and what the barriers currently are that exist um, to realizing some of those opportunities. And then I think the sort of second part of the question was around can primes and institutions across the three countries come together to create maybe their own sort of framework of technology acceleration. Anything that research institutions can do independently in defence industry to capitalise on some of these opportunities, I think, is a great thing. And in a way, they can provide a model for how to do this better, um, but also the pressure that they could put on the US system to say, you know, this is what the potential is for us to work together if you address some of these ITAR challenges, I think is really great. But um, the reality is that those barriers will still be there in the US. So I think it's the US that ultimately has to do the heavy lifting on driving these reforms. And just to jump in on Jen's excellent comments there, um, just triggered something that came out of another report the United States Study Center put out a couple of months ago, which basically synthesized some of the, the views that are circulating in defense industry on AUKUS and export controls at the moment. I think there's a general sense across the Australian defence industrial ecosystem that they haven't really been brought into the discussion around what AUKUS Pillar 2 is supposed to do and how it is supposed to deliver until very recently. So making sure that that discussion expands 
um, and proceeds in a way that is actually going to lead for some, you know, some material outcomes in the capability space, I think is going to be really important in the near term going forward. I think ultimately what industry can do is um, essentially articulate what it could do if it was allowed to cooperate. Uh, it can't because you can't talk to each other if you don't get an ITAR, uh, a TAA to talk to each other. But I think it can articulate what those benefits and values could be and what where we could be as, a, uh, as an alliance, as partners, as, as just even the United States, as far as enhancing its military capability through greater cooperation of our industrial bases. And, and the industrial base is gonna have to step up and outline what it is we could actually do and get from that. Great. Thanks, all. I think that's um, the perfect place to end it at. Um, so thank you so much, Bill, Tom, and Jen, for your time today. It's been a pleasure to discuss these issues uh, and, more importantly, see some progress towards solutions that's happening. And I'm leaving this conversation far more hopeful. Uh, and I look forward to seeing what happens in D.C. following the hearings of the House Foreign Affairs Committee coming up next week. Um, if you haven't already, please go to ussc.edu.au and read or download a copy of the new report, Breaking the Barriers, Reforming U.S. Export Controls to Realize the Potential of AUKUS, um, and also grab a copy of Jen's report um, called Laying the Foundations, uh, which looks at AUKUS Pillar 2, um, and also the Defense Industry Roundtable Report readout from those discussions across defense industry. That report is also there as well. So I've given everyone a bit of homework. You can go and read all three of those things. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, and make sure to sign up for our research alerts so that you'll be the first to know when a new report is released. And for those in Sydney, please join us for a live event next week with visiting fellow Dr. Will Inboden on how to stop a cold war from becoming hot, lessons from Ronald Reagan, uh, based on a book that he's written. And finally, thank you so much for joining us today. And a huge thank you to our team here at USSC who make these events possible, um, especially Janine, Jared, Gopika, and Suze for your work behind the scenes. Um, thanks all. I hope you have a lovely Friday. Thanks everyone for joining us and have a great day.